Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with Wealth Formula Podcast. You're probably wondering, wait, do you already have a podcast this week? Yeah, we're going to have two podcasts this week. Um, and this, the reason is that this is a podcast I recorded a few weeks ago and uh, realized that it's actually pretty important to get this out sooner rather than later. And part of that reason is because it involves life insurance. This is a particularly interesting area, I think, for those of you who fall into the higher net worth category. And what you're going to find is that life insurance combined with, you know, some of these charitable strategies can actually be a win-win-win situation, whereby effectively you give a bunch away, but in return, you get even more. It's pretty crazy, actually, and I wanted to make sure that you had a chance to know about this stuff, particularly because of some of the legislation changes that we've outlined in terms of guarantees in you know whole life insurance. Uh, it is now uh, no longer 4% guaranteed as it used to be. Well, that, that becomes effective January 1. That's an important number, and I know some of you are acting on it now, but what we're going to be talking about here with Christian Allen and with Jerry Barrowman, who's an expert in this area, is going to be of particular use to those of you who are, again, high net worth or anticipate that you have some sort of liquidity moment coming up that is going to put you in that category of more, you know, I'd say $5 million, $10 million plus and, you know, have businesses worth a lot of money, that kind of thing. So, Without further ado, after these messages, Jerry Barrowman and Christian Allen. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession-resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. 
with an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast. Well, one's familiar to you. His name is uh, Christian Allen. You know him from our Wealth Formula banking team, with, along with Rod Zabriskie. And today, we are also joined uh, by Jerry Varlman. Jerry is the Director of Advanced Markets at uh, Cambridge Financial. And Jerry has a very... Uh, interesting niche. He's essentially, he's a chartered uh, advisor in philanthropy, which is a, a pretty rare being. So uh, it'll be, it'll be fun to have them on and talk a little bit about stuff here, but welcome to both of you. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Buck. Happy to be back. So, you know, this is a, a show I've been wanting to have for some time and uh, it's a you know, we talk about a lot of interesting concepts as they relate to, you know, people building wealth. Um, we have a number of people who, you know, have liquidation, um, ton, you know, liquidation of their businesses, or maybe they have a ton of cryptocurrency and they're deciding to take the chips off the table or whatever, and they've got a bunch of money coming in. And so I've been trying to, you know, look at some of these other these techniques. And one of them actually uh, people will find a little surprising is through philanthropy. And so, Jerry, if you would, can you kind of give people who have no idea about how philanthropy works and how you can potentially actually have some ben benefits to yourself while you're living? Can you can you talk a little bit about that? I'd be glad to. So there's two phrases that make a lot of sense to people. One is to do something called tax-exempt planning. And charitable giving enables you to have tax-exempt planning. Now, whenever you mention a charity, that means you're going to give something away. But in this case, most of what you give away comes at the expense of taxes that would otherwise go to the federal government and to state governments wherever you might live. So much of what's happening is, is that you are creating a legacy outside of your family while preserving wealth for your family. So that's sort of the first thing that I would say about this is it can be called tax-exempt planning paired with charitable giving. The second thing is, is that in one of the great paradoxes of life, it's possible for someone to give something away and actually wind up leaving more to their family and having more income for themselves using this very well-defined tool set that the federal government has codified in tax law. So that's what philanthropy is all about. Got it. So let's kind of jump right into it. You know, what are, you know, what's an example of a structure uh, that uh, uses those principles? So there's a number of devices and two of the most prominent are called charitable lead trusts and charitable remainder trusts. A charitable lead trust is called the, the nuclear option for estate tax planning okay. because you can take literally any size estate and eliminate the estate tax down to zero using a charitable lead trust. So many, many years ago when I first started in the business, which was way back in 1978, a fellow wrote a book called Estate Tax, a Voluntary Tax. People only pay it if they choose to because all of these devices make it possible to avoid completely. 
Got it. Does that make sense? It does. It does. Now I'm very curious. So why don't we start with the uh, that charitable lead trust uh, example? How does that one work? Okay, so what would happen is um, I have an asset that is highly appreciated. In one case that I can think of, a person in California had built up a $100 million business. It consisted of real estate, operating companies, service companies, all of these under one, one group. He wanted to transfer it to his children, uh, but he wanted to minimize the estate and gift tax. So what happens is with a charitable lead trust, you transfer your property into a trust that, by the way, you get to be the trustee of. So you get to continue to manage the, uh, the asset. And you set a date in the future when your children will actually take control of that. Well, the longer you postpone the transfer to the children, the lower the value of the gift for gift calculation purposes. Because if I don't get to take control of a property today, if I have to wait, it isn't worth as much as if I took it right now. So that's the first step in a lead trust is my children will get the property. In the meantime, some percentage of the income that is produced by that property will go to a charity that I choose. So what happens is I'm able to take the income that will go to the charity during the life of the trust and deduct that from the value of the asset I'm transferring. Secondly, because I'm putting a period of time between us, I get to use government discount tables. And so you can literally take a billion dollar asset and by moving those to various dials, you can bring the gift tax value down to virtually zero if that's desired. That's uh, um, that's obviously compelling. So, but then, how if you're giving it away? Maybe you can talk a little bit about how, how do the children receive those uh, that that money or those you know that estate? First of all, uh, well, well, let's start with that question. Okay, so what's happening is is that I am giving it to the children. What I'm giving away is an income interest for some period of time. So the assets themselves are never extinguished. They never leave control of the family. They're just in a trust for a period of time. And and the magic of this is, is the government sets a discount table that says, if I give you a dollar today, it's going to be taxed as a dollar. But if I give it to you in 10 years, you'll use our table to calculate that it may be worth 50 cents or 25 cents. So we'll tax you on the gift today at the discounted value even though the asset itself may appreciate wildly in the next 10 years. So suppose it goes from a billion dollars to 2 billion. The gift is calculated at the time it enters the trust, not at the time that it leaves. And that's the magic of a, of a charitable lead trust. So then, then, and then the, as you said, the estate element of that, um, you also take away what was actually given. So that's the additional uh, part of that. So if you've you know given away over a period of ten years a hundred million of that billion dollars, uh, now the you know technically the the tax on that is now for the estate is would be if you came out of it would be nine hundred million. No, so um, I'm going to try a different way of presenting it. <laughs> See, so I'm, let's use. A, I'm a little dense. A You're going to have to keep going. If I gave you a million dollar gift today, and if that million were subject to a gift or estate tax, so a gift tax is imposed on a lifetime gift, an estate tax is imposed if it transfers to the kids of my dad. 
If I transferred it to you today, it would be valued at a million and you would owe $400,000 in gift taxes. Instead of that, I say, I'm going to put it in this trust. It's going to give 5% a year to a charity, whatever charity you love, Buck. And the kids will get the property when after 10 years has passed. Well, the government says we will apply a discount to that. And with 10 years and the current gift tax, it will probably be something like $250,000 is the value of the gift. We would then subtract from that the income that's going to go to charity in the next 10 years. And we would bring the value of that gift essentially down to zero. We're going to apply a gift tax against that. We're going to say we're giving a gift, but under your tables, government, it has a current value of zero. We've locked that in. Now, 10 years from now, that million dollars has actually grown to be worth two or $3 million worth of value. The kids inherit it. There is no tax due. And when I die, the tax was paid back when the gift was made. Now, I'm making up these numbers, but there are calculators that we have available where people can plug in the current value of their property, how much, how long they want to wait before they give it. And so you can actually calculate how much you want to discount the value of that gift using the tables and, and apply credits against it. So in other words, it's giving you control over your estate tax. That's the whole idea of this giving structure. Is there, okay, so from the standpoint uh, in this situation, would there be uh, any ability for, you know, the person who actually generated the income or had the asset to, A, a I guess, you know, enjoy that um, that money in any sort of way during life or before they give it away, or um, I guess take an income or I guess what, so what, while you're living and it's yours, is there any way to have any benefit or is part of it, you know, once it goes to your kids in 10 years, you've figured out how to not, well, I mean, you state tax, you're dead anyway. So, but, but while you're, while you're living, how can you take advantage of it? So the idea is, is this is going to apply to an asset that you don't have current need of. So you'll have other assets to provide your income. This is a gift you want that you intend to give to the kids. You simply want to give it at the most tax efficient way possible. So, so a charitable lead trust is designed for an asset where when you give it away, it's no longer yours. But that may be a good way to lead into the charitable remainder trust where you do get to have the benefit of that property for as long as you live and the value transfers when you die. Okay, so a charitable remainder trust, and remember that these are very well established in the tax code. If it's done properly, there's really no contesting it by the IRS because it's been codified by Congress and accepted by the Internal Revenue Service. So a charitable lead trust works when I want to sell an appreciated asset today. So a good example is a car dealership that we worked with a while ago. Dad started this dealership many, many years ago, had a very low basis in it, but the value of the dealership had expanded. Now I'm going to make up a number, and these are going to be pretty close to accurate. Let's suppose that he's selling a car dealership for $11 million, and his basis is $1 million. In other words, that's a contributed capital that he uh, paid tax on. So if he were to sell that today outright, he would owe capital gains on $10 million. 
Under the current estate tax code, that would come in at a 20% tax rate, federal, $200,000. 3.5% Obamacare surtax, $35,000. And in the state of Utah, 5% state tax, so another $50,000. So for him to sell that, I'm sorry, yeah, 500000 right. So, so for him that's to right. sell it was, that. It's actually $2 million, right? As opposed to. Right. 200 200 didn't sound so bad and i was like wait a second <laughs> yeah, yeah right sorry. i had a zero on all of those yeah yeah so, i'm, I'm sort of making this up as i go without yeah, no, a pen that's fine hand. that's fine 200 so so 2 million out of the 10 million and then would go to the federal government plus 350,000 for for the surtax plus in this case 500,000 to the state of utah so in essence, I'd sell my $11 million business about $3 million in taxes. I'd have $8 million left to put a work. Let's say I earn 5% as a conservative number. 5% of $8 million is $400,000 a year income that that would go forward until I die. So you with me? We got the math right now. And then when I die, by the way, this is subject to a state tax. So the kids are going to lose 40% of the $8 million. So they're going to lose another 3.2 million. So if you add 3.2 to three, we've lost 60% of the sale of that business to income taxes, estate taxes, gift taxes. Now let's do it a different way. Prior to the sale of the asset, I created charitable remainder trust. In my case, the Jerry and Marcella Borelman charitable remainder. I'm the trustee of the trust. So I get to manage it completely. I transfer my business into the trust first. And then as the trustee, I negotiate the sale for 11 million. The ultimate beneficiary of this trust is a uh, 501c3 charity or a family foundation. Because it's gonna go to a charity, when I sell the business for 11 million, I owe zero capital gains. So instead of having 8 million to invest and earn income on, I have 11 million to invest and earn income on. 5% 5% of 11 million would be 550,000 a year. So instead of 400,000 a year, I'm not going to earn 550,000. That's the first tax savings from a charitable remainder trust. The second is this, the government allows us to look at that $11 million gift. They look at our life expectancies. I'm 68, my wife is 66. They say you have a life expectancy of 20 years so we're going to say that of that 11 million that you're going to give to charity, we apply a mortality table to it. We're going to allow you to deduct approximately 60% of that gift and apply it against your income tax for up to the next six years. So I get a $6 million income tax deduction that can eliminate the taxes that I earn on up to 60% of my income for the next six years. Well, you know, suppose I make a million dollars a year because I'm very successful, I can offset that million, 60% of it, 600,000 for each of the next six years, I'm going to save tax on $3.6 million of income. That's roughly, um, what, more than a million dollars in income tax savings. Now, when I die, all of that property is going to go to uh, charities that I've named. It might be the Jerry and Marcella Borelman Family Foundation, which would preserve a legacy in our community forever, there will be zero estate taxes on that transfer to the charity. 
So we've eliminated a $4 million estate tax. We've eliminated a $3 million capital gains tax and potentially saved, what, up to a million dollars in income taxes. And then the best part of this is, is that for as long as my wife and I live, Buck, we will, we will be able to take the income produced by the sell of that business. We're investing it in commercial investments. Uh, and we can take that as income for as long as we live. So 550000 for as long as we live. And then it transfers to the charity. So the the income uh, and what you said, what percentage of that asset in the trust can you can you take as income to live on? So the number varies, and and think of it this way: we've got eleven million in the trust. We paid no capital gains on it. We get to set a payout rate. We have to calculate the payout rate so that there's at least a ten percent remainder interest at the time it goes to a charity. And again, we use government tables to calculate it. The practical effect is, is that we can set the payout rate somewhere between about 5 to 7% a year. And that will meet that test for the charitable remainder trust. The higher I set the payout rate, the lower my income tax deduction, because less money is expected to go to the charity. Now, of course, in this scenario, the uh, and then maybe this is where Christian can come in too, is in this scenario now, you know, you've got the stream of income, you've avoided tax, you've taken some tax deductions, uh, and now you've got some heirs who are saying, what? This isn't going to go to me? <laughs> this is going to go to a foundation? What about me? And so what? what's the work around there? So, Christian, do you want to uh, take a stab at that? Sure, I'll give it at least the high level. So... Um, one of the benefits we can get using a charitable, well, okay. So the challenge, like you're saying, is that the remainder goes to, um, the actual trust. So I do think that there's an element to wanting to be charitable in this, right. And, uh, and then above and beyond that, the way that we accomplish, uh, not disinheriting children or family is by purchasing a life insurance policy to cover the life of the, usually I would assume it's the donor. Is that fair to say, Jerry? Um, yes, but does so it have to of, be? One of the interesting things that came along in this, Buck and Christian, is that the life insurance, once this became codified in law, we designed a whole new type of policy to maximize the amount of money that can go to the family. So it's called a survivorship policy where you pay premiums until the second of two people have died. And what that does is, so, so the kids would have inherited $8 million dollars and owed a state tax on it, right? So they would have got eight million minus forty percent. So they would have received about five million dollars. The interesting thing is, is that we could insure the parents for the full eleven million dollars, and it it's just happenstance that it works this way. But almost always, the income tax savings that is created by the deduction is enough to pay up a ten million dollar or eleven million dollar policy that can be owned in an irrevocable life insurance trust that is outside the taxable estate. So the end result of this, go ahead. I was saying, or you could, I mean, presumably you could do premium finance and with that sure. policy and, and not have any of it go out. Yeah, exactly right. But let's suppose we say that, that, that a family donates this and says, okay, Christian, you get to use our income tax savings design a policy that will take care of that. 
what happens now is the family is getting 550,000 a year income for life instead of 400 because there was no capital gains. They're not going to use the income tax savings. They're going to give that to their kids by way of a gift to a trust. The kids get $11 million income tax-free and estate tax-free instead of $8 million subject to estate taxes. So the kids are better off. The donors are better off. And the charity certainly is better off. What essentially has happened, Buck, is that we have, have substituted the charity for all the money that would have otherwise gone to the federal and state government. And so that's how the, the paradox comes into play. By giving something away, you can actually wind up with more for yourself and your family. Got it. So, you know, I, I do want to, um, and, and Kershaw, I don't know if you had a chance to follow up on the video I had sent you to, but there was uh, there was like a video floating around in this podcast ecosystem where part of the in that gentleman um, actually showed the insurance policy being purchased by some of the money in the trust. Is that problematic? So that in, in that case, there's a bunch of money. Say you got that, you know, 11 million or whatever in there. Can you use some of that money to actually fund one of these life insurance policies that would then cover the kids? Yeah, so anything that's owned in the trust is going to go to the charity. So that's really important to know. You might want to use life insurance as an investment of the trust uh, because it may be able to make the payouts in a very safe fashion. Or if your primary motive is to, is to create a really great legacy, you might want to increase the value of the trust at your death by purchasing life insurance. So, so you can certainly put life insurance inside the charitable remainder trust, but that life insurance is going to be for the benefit of the charity. If you want to benefit your children, you're going to do it outside of the trust in a way that makes it estate tax-free and income tax-free to your kids. And, and there's lots of ways that we can help with that, but I, I hope that answered your question. Yeah, no, I, I think there's just uh, there's just some stuff floating around that I keep getting sent, and it sounds like it might not be quite accurate, just so people are aware of that. Um, you know, I did look into that, uh, Buck. I, I, it's been a couple months, uh, I think, since I went through that video, but in doing some due diligence, I found some kind of holes or challenges. And so I didn't do, I didn't go further into it, but from, from what I um, saw, it was maybe more in the gray area and we're usually, you know, right now we're playing with the charitable remainder trust. This is, you know, clean and, you know, well-established. And, and, you know, that's an important distinction because there's a lot of, you know, stuff out there where, yeah, you certainly could try. I've brought up some things to even to, uh, to Jerry, uh, and you where you were like, well, it might work, but you know, you're, it, it, you know, it could easily be very challenged and it becomes gray area. So, you know, it, it, it may not, may or may not be a good idea, depending whether you want to be on the, you know, on the bleeding edge of things or, or what. So let me ask you this, Jerry, in terms of this particular, and I want to, I want to switch to in a minute to the whole flip concept that you and I had discussed. But before we go there, when you look at the first two examples, the charitable lead trust, and then you look at, um, you know, the charitable remainder trust as it is, who's your typical person in each one of those? If you could give me sort of a sense of like, you know, your the the type of person who fits that. Okay, so it's a person 
who has a highly appreciated asset. And they- first, let's talk about specifically for each one, though, if, if I may. The first one, the Charitable Lead Trust, because that's going to be, you call it nuclear options, a very different concept. So who is that? It's an old, maybe somebody who's a little bit older who's not done a lot of estate planning at that point? Yes. To answer, yes. The person you just described. This is a wealthy family who owns an operating business, and they have finally sort of awakened to the fact that if I want to transfer this to the next generation or the third generation, I'm going to be subject to a lot of transfer taxes to do that. Transfer tax refers to a gift tax during life or an estate tax at death. I'm ready to part with it and let them let the business move into their hands, but I want to minimize those taxes. So you would look at someone who is very active in the business and very active in the estate and ready to start transferring it. And they're willing to give up their interest in those assets. That would be the key factor yep. is to say, we're willing to say goodbye to them in order for it to stay in the family. Sure. Okay. So it sounds like it's like very much a business succession strategy. Yeah. It, it's uh, yes. It's part of the business succession strategy. Now, how about the, the charitable remainder trust as you just described it? That's someone who has a highly appreciated asset. It might be a stock portfolio I haven't really looked into cryptocurrency, but it seems that that would certainly qualify. Any asset on which you would pay uh, capital gains if you sold or while you owned it. And I'm ready to make that sale within the next year or the next three months or the next month. And, and I figured out that if I can avoid paying the capital gains tax on that, I will have more money left to provide an income to me, to me and my spouse, to my children, whoever I want to name as the beneficiaries of that trust. So I want to sell that asset without paying capital gains. And and I do have charitable inclinations. That's the perfect candidate for a charitable remainder trust. And with regard to the charitable remainder trust, you, you talked about appreciating assets. Um, uh, how about, I mean, what, what in, is it, uh, you, cryptocurrency obviously makes, it frankly just makes sense because it's really not any different than stocks. We have a, a very heavily um, real estate oriented uh, crowd here. So what are the challenges if, if uh, with regard to appreciated real estate, if any? So the, there's no challenge if it's not debt encumbered. So you can transfer real estate to the trust um, you could transfer a, an interest in a limited liability company that owns real estate. The only thing about charities is, is that charities are not allowed to use debt as a source of financing. If you do, it creates something called unrelated business taxable income, and that would, would taint the value of the charity. So this has to be property that is not subject to debt that gets transferred. I should say here, Buck, that all of this is stuff that is, as I'm talking about, as you're talking about, or we're talking at a very high level, all of this requires an attorney who's very well versed in using these charitable devices to help create the trust, make sure that the assets that transfer into it are proper. Nearly all charities are named as beneficiaries if they help pay for the cost of setting up the trust, and most of them will help, by the way. Um, They're going to want to have their legal team look it over uh, to make sure that we get it right. So when you talk about the leverage issue, obviously in, in real estate, there is a lot of leverage involved, but you know, a number of maybe a very common way that we see through in our, in our uh, demographic 
is through the ownership of limited partnership shares, which, uh, you know, they're not directing, investing directly in the asset itself per se. It's through an LLC, a GPLP uh, structure, and then non-recourse debt. Does that make a difference or do you still run into the problem with UBIT? The way that I understand it in the most of the large charities that I've worked with, um, is they will, the IRS will always look through to the core asset and the core operation of the business. So this is a gray area that Christian was talking about. There are some people who feel that if I give an ownership interest in an LLC, that that's the asset that should be valued, regardless of what the LLC does for its activity. And so they say, this is fine. And there's attorneys who say you can do that. Um, all of the charities that I've worked with have said they would not accept that gift because they would look through and see the that it's really real estate, that it has debt assigned to it, and, and they would be worried that that would come through and taint their interests. Um, and so we're really at the deep end of the swimming pool right now. I would say this. You want to give an asset that you are ready to part with, and you're not going to operate a business in a charitable... You, you can operate a business in a charitable lead trust, you are not going to want to operate a business in a charitable remainder trust. You're going to sell this asset and convert it into income producing assets like a stock portfolio, a variable annuity, commercial type assets that are designed to provide an income. And so you're ready to let go of it. The second thing that I need to say is uh, this doesn't, you, you can apply Solomon to this. You don't have to give a hundred percent of your interest in this business to the charitable remainder trust. You could give 25%, avoid the estate, estate and, and, and uh, capital gains tax on that portion, sell the rest, do a 1031 exchange and, and postpone the tax to the future or take the money out so you can start a new business. So, so, so they're extremely flexible in their design. What do you mean take the money out and start a new business from, wh- from where? Okay, so let's go back to our same car dealership. Selling it for $11 million, got a basis of a million. And I say, I want to take some money off the table and make it safe for my own retirement. This leads to a variation of a charitable remainder trust called a flip trust. So I can transfer, let's suppose I said, I'd like to take about $3 million of this and make it safe so that, so that it's protected from creditors, it's protected from me, and a lot of times spouses want that. They know they've got a serial entrepreneur for a husband or for a wife. They say, let's put some of it where it's safe, and we know that it'll be there when we reach age 65. So I take 30% of my business, and I transfer that into the charitable remainder trust. I remain the owner of the other 70%. Now when I negotiate the sale of the business, 70% of the proceeds are going to come to me. I'll owe tax on that amount but then I got a whole bunch of money left that I can go out and do something new with. But the 30% that goes into the charitable remainder trust gets sold with no capital gains. It's now put in commercial investments. It, we, with what's called a flip provision, you can say, and all of this gets, there's a lot of language with this, a net income with makeup provisions, charitable remainder trust is called a NIMCRUD. If you add a flip provision to it, you can say, I'm going to take income from this, but I don't want to take income until a flip event occurs. A flip event could be the death of the grantor. 
So it becomes like a life insurance trust. It could be the retirement of the grantor. It could be the sale of an asset that we don't want to sell for some period of time. So now when I reach 65, the trust flips. It now starts producing income, but we can take out not just the annual income at the payout rate that we initially set, 5%, say. We can make up all of the income that we could have taken in the previous 20 years. So we can take a whole bunch of money out of that trust and we have still avoided the capital gains. We still got the income tax deduction. So now I've got some money that's safe and I've got other money that's available to me because I owned it when I sold the business and I go and start a, a, di- a different kind of business. Got it. Got it. And, uh, and that flip is sort of by your design. I mean, you, you figure out when you want to do that. Exactly right. And that's why you want to have people who are very experienced in helping you do this so that they can get those provisions exactly as that will be in the best interest of you and your family. You know, I know, uh, I know my audience at this point is thinking this sounds fantastic, except that, you know, mostly I own limited partnership (laughs) in, in real estate. So then you, you talked a little bit about the charity itself you know, having some insight into that. But then earlier you were talking about that charity potentially being, you know, your own family foundation. Is that, so in that case, you, you do have that option, presumably in your own charter of, you could say, well, we'll accept anything within an LLC, you know? um, I mean, I guess the analogy there in my mind is like any business it's like even if you have these cars and all that they're probably using some level of debt within their business so what happens in the in the real world buck is is if i have multiple interests in limited liability companies that operate uh real estate and they use leverage what would most likely happen is is that we would take one or more of those and we would eliminate the debt in that particular LLC so that it could go into the charitable remainder trust. And then we would keep outside of the trust those that are going to continue to use debt financing. The thing that I've got to sort of get across is this doesn't work for every situation and and for every person. The second thing I I want to get across is is that charities are, are created. And the reason we get these three tax savings, capital gains, income tax, and transfer tax, is because you're going to operate for the long-term interest of charities. And charities should not be operating real estate, and they shouldn't be out developing new business projects. They create for-profit companies to do that. So there are very large charities that own for-profit businesses, but they operate separate from the charity. All of the devices I'm talking about today are considered charities in and of themselves. And so they have to follow the very strict rules that apply to charities. And so it's almost always going to be in, in uh, commercial. So if I were looking at your folks and one of them saying, um, wow, I own all these LLCs. I wish I could take advantage of this. The first is, is consider, are there any portion of them that could be made debt free prior to the transfer? And if that's possible, then it may be a device to, to look at. The second is, and I know Christian has people he can refer people to, you do, I certainly do attorneys who have specialty in this. It all starts with the fact finding. So they sit down, they list the assets that they have. They talk about what they want to accomplish. I know that there was a, a group here in Salt Lake city who created a company that created some of the initial storage devices for computers. 
started out with 10 megabyte hard drives and now it's up to terabytes of storage. And when they went public, went public for several hundred million dollars. Many of the original owners of that company, the vast majority of their money went into a different kind of trust called a Nevada trust or a self-settled trust, a, an asset protection trust that allowed them to avoid a great deal of transfer taxes. It didn't involve a charity at all. But, but all of them put some of their stock into charitable remainder trusts with the flip provision so that, so that they had money waiting for them when they reached a certain point in their life. So, so this is sort of more of a niche play maybe than it is a general play. I should point out too that you know one of the one of the values of what we're talking about here, and, and it you know I don't know there there certainly are some of you out there that I think um, probably may want to look into this a little bit more. But um, the you know one of the one of the pieces of legislation out there right now uh, in tax legislation um, is uh, to eliminate this um, you know essentially these Nevada Dynasty trusts. Uh, ability to remove, you know, money from uh, your personal estate and put it into your children's estate. Uh, I know that for a fact because I do have a dynasty trust myself, and it is a, even though it's a grantor trust, it's a grantor trust, meaning I pay taxes on that. It is supposed to eliminate uh, the problem of of estate taxes. But that is being uh, debated, and, and the current legislation is out there is to effectively make that part of the individual's estate if they're paying taxes on it. So I, I bring that up because as those things play out, you know, there are these other tools out there uh, that we, we need to think about. Any comments on that from either one of you? So I don't have, I, well, not specifically on the, the dining, the, that specific trust, but I do have a thought that's been kind of, that's been kind of in my mind for the last few minutes that I want to just throw out there. And that is this idea that uh, one of the challenges that we run into, and, and obviously Buck, we work with your community of listeners. Um, we've met with probably thousands of them over the years. And one of the things that ha- often happens is they'll get to us once they're at the sale of the business and they're trying to say, hey, what can I do now? And so the, the thing that I think I would probably emphasize to people is any of these concepts or strategies, you really want to start thinking about them ahead of time so you can do the appropriate types of planning. Uh, but there have certainly been people that we've run into inside of your listeners that have come to us just too late to do much on it. And so be thinking about these things early uh, and it'll give you a chance to have far more opportunity to kind of you know make the most of it. Amen to what Christian said. I think this is a time for people who have an interest in passing assets to the next generation to become involved politically, to reach out to Congress, um, because this this threat of grantor trust really seeks to undo a lot of planning that has been well established for the last 40 years that I've been in the insurance business. And, and Congress really needs to hear because as you know, Buck, every single day they're talking about things that are being taken out of the legislation to to make it palatable to enough senators to pass the thing. And and this is one that, that people really should be interested in, particularly people who own real estate. Um, is there uh, right now, Jerry, uh, any legislation that affects any of what we're talking about today? 
There is nothing that I know of that affects a charitable remainder trust or the charitable lead trust. Yeah, so so you need to understand that I, I heard it explained this way once, Buck. The federal government has a philosophy that says each of us has an obligation to share part of the wealth that is created in the United States with society in general. And Bill Gates Sr. once gave a great talk that said, we feel like Microsoft is probably worth 300% of what it would be if it had been created in England or any other country in the world because we have a climate of innovation. So he said, we're actually interested in passing it on. But what the what the tax code does is it says, you get to decide whether to allow your money to go to the federal government by virtue of taxes, or you get to decide if that social capital goes to charities that you want to have some input and say over in how that money is used. And we don't care. If you use these tools, we're fine with it because charities serve society, government serves society. It's your choice whether or not to do it. And that's really what these devices are about. Got it. Very good. Um, Christian, am I missing anything? Nope, I think you nailed it. You asked a lot of good questions. So the only thing that I would add to this, Buck, is that I am uh, a life insurance professional who has a lot of education in the area of charitable giving. I'm often called on by charities to help them evaluate gifts, particularly if they have life insurance involved. But I am not a tax professional. And so the the education we've been given today should not be considered tax advice. It's really important that people go to their own CPA, their own attorneys to, to get things right for their specific situation. Yeah. And, uh, and most of them will be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And so then you may, then you may want to reach out to Christian and Jerry. Uh, if we want to talk more (laughs) to you about this stuff, um, Christian, Jerry, what, what's the best way to reach out? You can just come through us. Jerry's really an extension of our organization. Uh, just on a side note, he's kind of a mentor. I've worked with Jerry since I've been in the industry for 16 years. And um, anyway, so he's really part of our organization. If any of this stuff is intriguing, then reach out to us and we'll get Jerry involved and uh, you can work directly with him. Can I add just one more thing, Buck? You bet. As I've worked with many, many successful families, they may reach out to us because they're curious about charitable remainder trusts. What actually gets implemented in the long run may be completely different. It's just a great starting point for a conversation as to how are we going to transition this business? How are we going to move this to the next generation? And a very good friend of mine who's, who has planned billion-dollar estates, at one point he had, he had helped uh, transfer more than half a billion dollars in assets he said there's 101 tools in the estate planner's toolkits, and it's knowing which one to use in which situation that makes the difference. So we talked about two today. Uh, they may be of interest, but there's a lot else out there to explore. Fantastic. Well, thank you both, Jerry and Christian, uh, for being on the show this week. Obviously, you know a lot of good stuff here uh, to explore. For people who are interested, make sure to reach out. Uh, reach out to Christian. Um, you will also go to wealthformulabanking.com. You can reach Christian through that site. And also, if you want to just email me, I'm happy to forward you the him, him and Jerry the email as well. Uh, you can reach me at buck at wealthformula.com. Uh, thanks again, both of you, and uh, hope, uh, hope we can uh, touch base soon again and uh, get some more great ideas. Awesome. Okay. Thanks, Buck. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hopefully you enjoyed that. Now, again, if you know, one of the reasons that I did this is because a lot of the insurance, you know, legislation changes are are happening at the end of the year. I'm being told by Christian and, and Rod that if really realistically, if you get your application in and that kind of thing this week, you can still meet the deadline of, you know, finishing up a policy, at least where it needs to be, so that you get grandfathered into 2021 law. So go to wealthformulabanking.com if you want to learn just a little bit about Wealth Formula Banking and Velocity Plus strategies. But that's also where you can reach out to Christian and Rod uh, if you're interested in some of these strategies that Jerry talked about. That's it for me on this bonus episode of Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.